Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh with Michael Carlino. Michael, how are you doing? It's been a little while, although I think you're coming up on maybe the most guest appearances on the show so far. <laughs> oh, well, hey, that's a distinguishing mark. I'm honored to be so. <laughs> it's good to be back once again. I think, yeah, what is this, seven or so? Yeah, so it's been good quite question. a I haven't kept track. I have to look up in the archives. Yeah, no, it's been great. Uh, I look forward to continuing where we left off last time. Yeah, I think most people would say, if you're working on environmental sustainability, why would you talk about talk to someone at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary? What's the connection? And to me, it could be more obvious of if you're working with people, whom do you talk to except people that you can learn from? Yep. And, oh, I got to go off topic. I want to pick up where we left off. But I was just listening to a, a talk given by a guy named um, Alan Mulally. So for people who don't know who Alan Mulally is, he was the CEO of Ford when they were, he came in when they were borderline bankrupt or very close to it and turned it around during the recession, the 08 recession, when the other two U.S. automakers took big government grants. He did not grants, but government funding. He didn't. And the stock went up like a thousand percent in that time. Before that, he was at Boeing. So he's been voted and named like best leader of many different places. So he's talking about his first day at Ford. I guess there's been a lot of vetting at this stage, but I think he came in the airport, something, a car picks him up and he says the car is a Land Rover, which is not a Ford. There's plenty of Ford cars that could have, he could have been picked up in, not that. Then they drive him into the Ford headquarters and he drive, they drive him down in the basement. I'll put a link in a, so that people can watch this. I, I think it's publicly viewable this uh, on Vimeo. And he says he gets into the parking lot and this is the executives where the executives park. And he looks around, not one Ford car. And he had already said in this talk about how it's all about people, leadership and, and changing organizations is all about people. A, a few other things too, but people. And I couldn't help but think of how many people say individual action doesn't matter on the environment. Any of these Ford executives could say, maybe they had a Ferrari, I don't know, but they could have had a Ford and they didn't. And doesn't matter or not. I guess other people would say, no, most people are flying and polluting and Alan Mulally, I believe, would beg to differ that uh, what the individual does matters. Like, well, anyway, how did I get onto that? I think because we were talking about people, I forget. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Why would you talk to a guy in a PhD program at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary about such things? Yeah. Anyway, so where we left off last time, and I, I can't remember if this was in a recording or if it was one of our, we, so the listeners know we talk otherwise also. And we both agreed that our top level mission is human flourishing, at least with regard to the environment, I think. And, but well, we differ. Well, I would say we've talked about this and to an extent, yes, my ultimate aim is not human centered. It's to the, to the glory of God. So, and I don't just say that as a platitude. So that grounds how I'm going to think about these, but, but we both do agree. Yes. Human flourishing um, ought to be a aim, whether it's subordinate or, or a penultimate or ultimate that there might be some discussion there, but we agree it should be very high. Yeah. Yeah. Because as I said, it, there's that pause and I said, with regard to the environment, which was to catch <laughs> that it was like within this realm. Yeah. And thank you. And so I'd mentioned, or maybe you mentioned, one of us mentioned the moral case for fossil fuels, which is a book by a guy named Alex Epstein. Yep. At the time I'd heard of it, but hadn't read it. I'd come across it from several different places. And so since then I've read it, and that led to reading a lot of what it's based on, 
or so far more watching. So I'm not, do you know Julian Simon and then Milton Friedman? Yeah. And I'd read The Fountainhead in high school a long time ago. Then, so then there were a couple of names that came up, Bjorn Lumberg, Johan Norberg, who are some other people. So you're nodding yes. So I'd come across their names in a little bit before, but didn't dive deep into it such as now. I actually made a webpage of all the stuff that I went through. So I'll make this link available yeah. of, of all of this. And maybe that's where we could pick up. Because if you're nodding yes, that means you've read all that. I've all interacted that. with it. Yeah, I wouldn't say I've read all of it. I've definitely interacted with it. And to be honest, like it's been years. Because like right now with being in a PhD program and a different emphasis, my my studies are elsewhere. But yes, in uh, between like 2015, 2017, that was something I was reading a lot on and studying pretty closely. But yeah, I'm familiar with all the names you mentioned. I'm curious how you... what. Actually, I'm going to get out a file. As I was reading the moral case for fossil fuels, I decided to write out what I understood to be the core of the book. Steel Man, if you will, if, if for people who know, you know what a steel man is, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't build a straw man. Build up the opponent as much as you possibly can or the person you're acting with so that you can uh, accurately represent their views. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what got you into it? How did you discover it? What got you started? Yeah. Yeah. So being somebody who's interested in theology primarily, that's a systematic theology program studying the world through the lens of scripture. I also want, want my my thinking to be grounded in reality. Not that the Bible doesn't teach reality, but the Bible doesn't necessarily talk about fossil fuels directly. There might be indirect connections, but with the scriptures having the canon being closed in the early, most of the, the Bible, most people would say is, was finished by about 100 AD. They're not debating with fossil fuels or climate change, not thinking through those things explicitly. But what led me to thinking through them was the fact that as a, in college, all I ever heard from people when it came to fossil fuels or things like that in particular was that they were terrible. Every conversation I, I remember with all of my environmentalist friends, uh, which were many, I was one of the few conservatives at a state school in Pennsylvania for one year and talked quite a bit about it there. And then even in Bible college, there's various views on these things. But lots of people, I think it's so normal right now through mainstream media and through how people talk about these things through the majority of scientists that whenever you hear a fossil fuel, you hear that's not good and it's we need to get off of it. And so that just led me to look into Epstein's work and just to think through what he was getting at. Because I think, and this might lead to something, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but if there was a really clean replacement for fuel that was cheap and that was actual substantive enough to carry on our ability to travel and to send things where we need to get them, all those kind of things, I don't think you'd find a conservative that would fight against you if that's the, the debate is over. One, are the fossil fuels as destructive as is often purported? But then secondly, and I think even more importantly for conservatives, at least those of my ilk, would be, do you have a realistic replacement of any kind? So, for example, if we're going to get off of oil, are we going to replace them with just a bunch of lithium batteries from China that we then end up throwing into a big landfill and you know, which would end up probably being just as bad, if not worse, than the problems we ha already have. So I think that tied in, there's two there's two part discussion that I think Epstein really works from, and I think conservatives are trying to link in front when they're reading him and, and working through those things on. And that is the question: one, are they 
are the fossil fuels as much of a threat as people think they are? But then secondly, is there an adequate replacement for their usage right now in the world? So I'd be happy to hear if you want to add to that or build from what you've read from from Epstein recently, that'd be great. I'm tempted to read the, I'm looking at the, I brought up the file while we were talking and it's, so it's four paragraphs, it's long, but it might be worth, I'm going to read it to you and tell me if you get bored, stop me. And tell me if this sounds like it's roughly what he's saying. Yeah, go ahead. And of course he's got, obviously, I don't have to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. He's got a whole book. So this is very, very short concession uh, summary. So it's not going to be the full thing. So we live in an abundant world, especially abundant with energy. We are smart and resourceful. We use energy to increase our numbers and improve our lives. That is to increase human flourishing, which is the measure of good and bad. The more we apply ourselves to solving problems, the more we solve. Using fossil fuels helps human flourishing in some ways and hurts in others, or for short, using them as good in some ways and bad in others. The predominant voice today is that they are bad, though often by measures other than human flourishing. For decades, those voices have predicted doom but by the most relevant measures, including longevity and deaths from climate, human flourishing has increased with increased fossil fuels. Before we used fossil fuels, we were starving in caves. In places in the world without access to fossil fuels, babies suffer and die needlessly, as do adults. That voice is wrong. Quotes from the top experts behind it being are as wrong as can be. Specifically, these experts said human population would have collapsed many times over by now, plus global cooling, etc. But humans are flourishing more than ever. If we listen to them, we should judge what they say based on their biases, track records, and measures of good and bad. One big flaw of theirs, they aren't looking at a big enough picture. They focus on the detriments of fossil fuels. Yes, it has detriments, but they ignore the benefits, most of which no other energy source can provide in quantity or quality. Moreover, our ingenuity plus fossil fuel energy can solve or at least mitigate the problems we need to increase the benefit. The net result, the more we use fossil fuels, the more human flourishing we create. We should use more fossil fuels. If another energy source increased human flourishing more, he would promote it instead, but none does. That was my attempt to capture the main points of where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. Not just him, but Julian Simon. I felt like Julian Simon was one of the main influencers yeah. there. Yeah, and I think that's a good basic capturing. Because the question really comes down to one of the things I think about just tracking the history on these discussions is, if you go back to pre-oil usage and you're looking at particularly coal and how dirty and how much that ruined the environment, I think of, I'm from Pennsylvania and I'm a Pittsburgh Steeler fan, right? They're called the Steelers because of steel, because of the coal mines, because of the usage of it, because of the creation of steel and all that, and how that was really dirty and nasty and actually affecting human life in, in, in many ways. And so oil has actually been a, a development and a improvement upon that. And I think that's what Epstein is trying to track is we can look at where we're at through a lens of extreme skepticism and horror, or we can choose to work with a, more, a moral calculus that's willing to try to weigh, weigh the pros and the cons. And I think I would agree with, I don't know if I would agree, it's been years, I don't know if I'd agree with everything Epstein says, but the basic premise of human flourishing and the fact that there isn't a viable alternative that is actually provable in any way right now for that uh, is our key arguments as we think about these things. Even just take the Ukraine-Russian situation we're in right now and the conversations around, I even remember uh, President Biden recently mentioning something along the lines, if we're not dependent on foreign oil, then we can solve this. And the problem is like, I have a bunch of friends who are in car manufacturing. I've talked to some of them recently. And they'll, they'll tell you, talk to them, to people actually, there is not enough electric cars to replace what there is. There's not enough 
setups. Uh, even take the, the horrible situation a couple months ago in Virginia where everyone got stuck on the highway for a day or two. I don't know if you saw that, but the news where people were stuck and it was freezing cold and all that. And people were talking about like, these were all electric cars. What do you do? Can't keep a charge. Can't do what fuel would do. So there's just questions that people, I think, are... <laughs> There's an idealism. I think that's what Epstein's going to. There's an idealism that often comes across to conservatives or to those of us who aren't as anti-fossil fuel. There's an idealism that is not rooted in reality. That and there isn't a substantive replacement. If there's an, we're willing to engage if there's actual replacements. But otherwise, what you're asking us to do is give up things that we believe are actually making society markedly better so that you can remove something that you see as a threat that we don't even agree is as much of a threat. So that, that, I think that, that basically Epstein's premise, I think you captured it well. Cool. Yeah, I think that the, I had to read it, I think I'm decent at adopting an open mindset before reading something. I have my biases as everyone does. Oh, everyone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, certainly here's one place where I agree with him on is that there's a lot of people promoting sustainability who are not themselves remotely living sustainably or even trying. And there are plenty of arguments and debates or arguments posed that are easily, like they're facile that of, I'm not sure. I, certainly to me, solar and wind are not sustainable. They may pollute less than some things, but they require fossil fuels at every stage of production, manufacture, installation, disposal at the end, they pollute. And to pretend otherwise is dreaming. Maybe someday in the future, but not now. Yeah. And I think behind this too is, it, so uh, there, it went viral a couple of weeks ago whenever as Pete Budovich, I think his name is, the on uh, President Biden's cabinet, whenever he made the comment like, well, just start buying electrical vehicles and this these rising gas prices wouldn't be an issue. There's a couple of things there that conservatives like myself are going to be frustrated by. One of them is the assumption that there are, plenty of electric vehicle like there's enough electric vehicles that are op, that are out there and available secondly can people afford them is this viable but third there's another thing that comes up in these conversations and that what if you have a lot of us who are conservatives believe that human flourishing built into that is that there's the notion of having larger families and frankly if you have a five six child family good luck with electrical vehicles <laughs> like good luck with a, with a viable option so many times that's going to that's going to be actually affordable for a larger family and things like that so there's much bigger conversation than just environment environment is a piece of that and i think that this comes up it came up in covid conversations it came up in in many other conversations where one field of expertise does not have the right to overwhelm every other field of expertise so if you have a concern about fossil fuels or things like that then you don't have the moral high ground over every other area of existence, such as people with larger families or actual affordability. All these other things are moral too and carry with it come aspects that connect into human flourishing that need to be discussed in these conversations. So we have to have a holistic approach to the conversation that doesn't push all the others out on the basis of, I believe that, for example, if you're more progressive on this, I believe that the world is in grave danger. So therefore, this overruns all these other considerations, even if it puts them in a, in a difficult position. So I think that's what conservatives are often hearing, which sometimes leads to a defense of this that isn't helpful in the conversation on the reverse end. So. I remember I said once that, and I believe if whatever the problems are, I'm not interested in a solution that is autocratic or I, I don't like when people are trying to hear it. Like when I went to talk at Columbia Earth Institute, 
I gave a talk there some years ago. And I was talking to one of the scientists and they were saying, we're trying to get the senators to pass this thing. We're trying to tell them this is what's right. This is how things are. And I thought, even if you are right, even if there's some absolute measure of right and wrong and you've got it, you're going around democracy. If, If you believe the votes are there, you don't have to be doing this with the senator. I'd rather go down with democracy than try to push things through and and. I think if we go autocratic, I'm not saying this scientist talking to the senator is autocratic, but I think there's a lot of, we know, there's a lot of people feeling we know what's right and we got to figure out how to make this happen. And, but leaving out the talking to the voters and, and I'd rather go down with democracy than I, because I think if we don't go, if we leave democracy, no matter what we get, I think it ends up being, it's you can't tyranny. stop someone once they. It becomes tyranny. Yeah. And that's what conservatives are deplorative. I mean, I think we've seen mild forms of that to extreme forms that depend on where you're at, even with COVID and other related things. When one, when an expert in one related field gets to speak into other people's lives such a way that starts affecting their work, that starts affecting their livelihood, all these other things, I think we have a concerning issue to deal with. So, yeah. So there's a lot of things. Was it surprising when I said I'd rather stick with democracy if it doesn't work out than go another route? This was like a month or two ago. Yeah, it's surprising. It's a good thing. I'm encouraged to hear people say that. I think that's probably in with the group that you're working with, and that's probably a minority position as far as, well, at least in my anecdotally, in my experience, I don't meet progressives who aren't trying to work around democracy very often in some way. So, yeah. There's a whole bunch of issues that I have questions about. One of the big ones is, I'm going to, so one was about something you just said, but I'm going to go back to earlier. One of the things that Epstein says many times in the book is he talks about how people were 30 was old age. And he has a story about a child dying that could have been saved had there been fossil fuels providing the energy in this, not Ghana, Gambia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember that. And one of the big things is this view that I think, I think there's a view that something like if you look at Europe in the middle of medieval ages, People were living in the mud and they were serfs with no freedom and starving. And then if you extrapolate backward, back in when in the Stone Age, I mean, the reason we put on fat so quickly is that we never knew when our next meal was going to come. And so we had to store energy as much as possible. And therefore, and we extrapolate forward, things are getting better. And the last thing we want to do is return to the Stone Age or to these terrible times when I look at the anthropology and the archaeology, as well as current societies and cultures that are not ours, what I see is they're healthier and more, they have higher scores of health, longevity, abundance, equality than we do. And when I look at as the culture that I'm in expanded through colonialism, several centuries ago, other places resisted joining that culture. And I always grew up thinking they just didn't know any better. But now I think the more I learned, the more I think that they looked at the culture that I'm in now, uh, early, an earlier incantation of it, or earlier generation of it, I think they looked at it and said, we don't want that. That's not better. That's, that would be a step down from the equality and freedom that we have not equality, but more freedom and abundance. So I probably would, I don't think, I question if he did his research on 
what it was like before. And I think he, it's, it looks to me like he bought into something that I also bought into. That's, that's an interesting point. I think if you're going to do a broad stretch of human history, you would be hard pressed to try to argue that we're not somehow, that we're not in a better position than we were during middle ages or during, during early industrialism or things like that. Those, you would have to do a lot of extrapolation to work around that. This culture. But I think that was a result of agriculture and relying on an agriculture that we hadn't yet figured out to get. But if you go before agriculture, it was another story. Or if you go to other places now that are not, I'm not saying we have to, I'm, I'm not proposing giving up agriculture, but I'm saying that we took, there was a lot of infant mortality, but we took a big hit in longevity when we shifted to agriculture because our diet got much more monotonous. Our, ultimately, our exercise nowadays, our exercise is much, much lower. If you go to a place, other cultures, people would routinely live 60, 70 years old. The average would be low because of infant mortality. But the biggest things to improve infant mortality were things like washing hands, things that don't require pollution. So I, and also in terms of hours worked, apparently we work more hours now than those serfs did in medieval times. Oh, there's a lot of debate about that. Yeah. It's not a slam dunk. Yeah. And and I would agree. I think we, I might've mentioned this before, but just one time when I was able to go to Costa Rica for a couple of weeks and work in that climate, it was neat how they would take in some places called a siesta, but they didn't call it. I can't remember exactly what they called it, but essentially they would take an hour to two hours from 1 PM to 3 PM every day. And they'd rest and enjoy good conversation. Then they go back to work until about 7 PM and then we'd be done. But like, their culture, they worked when they were working and then they rested. So they, they either were working or resting. Whereas in our culture, we're typically really distracted and we're working longer because we're not working as productively. And we have a million things going on. We have our phones going off. We have all these distractions. So we're not really committed to one thing. So we're rather schizophrenic. So I think that naturally leads itself to working longer, but not working deeper or better. So I think that those are realities. I think that those are things, though, that are related more to human condition and self-discipline practices than they are necessarily indicative of something related to whether it be fossil fuels or whether it be related to other things like that. I wouldn't pin that as a problem from there. And you mentioned like longevity of life and things like that. Go ba- If you go back, I would think of, uh, well, I study a lot of the Reformation time because being a Protestant, so, so studying Martin Luther, John Calvin, guys like that. And in their time, it was rather disgusting in much of the cities and places they're trying to live. And so I think we're much farther along in health and cleanliness. And you're right, hand cleaning is part of that, but there's other things that we're doing that are, that, that are significantly better. So I would question the premise that they would have lived just as long if they just had cleaner hands or things like that. I don't think that to be the case. I think we have a lot of things in place that are better. I do agree with the exercise bit. You point out like we're maybe not as good shape or things like that. That again, though, I wouldn't put on fossil fuels doing anything that again that's human decision and i think that we have just as many things we can go out and be active if we want we're choosing not to be and i would put that on us not on movements or systems or things like that if that makes sense so the reason it got me each time that i saw it was i was thinking i think he's i think there's something strongly motivating him about a concern about sliding back into some horrible primordial primordial situation and one, the more that I learned about other cultures, the, and I don't mean other cultures like France and Costa Rica, something that's completely un, you know, not 
driven by not going by our I don't I don't know how to call what feels like mainstream culture the, the culture that I grew up in. And I can't say Western and I can't say global north because it doesn't capture it. But when I look at the more that I learn about others, the more I learn of the wealth and diversity of them going back a long, long time and partly and why is this so important to me? Because of the changes that I made in my life that had I not made them, I would have concluded that they were making my life worse or predicted that they would make my life worse. And I want to be careful that people don't extrapolate from what I'm saying. I'm talking about myself in this case. I'm not trying to say everyone should live like me. But I am saying that if, if people believe that a divert, diversion from you know, pedal to the metal progress, and I put progress, what they would call progress, is if that must be a disaster, then you only need one counterexample to show that something, if you say it must be this, then you only need one counterexample to disprove it. I'm not trying to disprove it, but my reducing my impact, my, my, my waste by 90% and finding that this has been a, on every measure that's valuable, that's important to me, an improvement of my life. This should be impossible. Unless you would say you've got hospitals around you, you've got all these things, you've got this supply chains that are all built up by fossil fuels and you're enjoying a, a quality of life that maybe you're not actively doing it, but you've got this net all around you that's making it happen. I could see that. I could see someone saying that, although I, I, I would say that if others changed, it would increase my flourishing if they also did what I did. It should be impossible it's by... Uh, there's all these comments that I would see of him saying that. I would think then I must be living a worse life, but I'm not. If everyone dropped 90%, that's a huge shift. I'm not proposing everyone drop 90%, although I do believe it's possible. And I believe that most people would feel their lives improve for the reasons you talked about of choices that we make. I know one thing, there's no changes that everyone can make, no matter how much we do in any direction. I think everyone is, I don't want to shock anyone, but I think we're all going to die at some point. Each one of us is mortal. And we're all going to, we're probably going to have some pain in our lives. And we're all going to see people around us suffer. And we're all going to die. And we're not going to change that. And we can make our lives longer. But I see a lot of people suffering in old age. And I see a lot of people not helping their grandparents, putting them in an old age home. That's something where uh, my wife and I, as we plan, our families go back a couple generations in Pennsylvania. So as our, our parents age, we have every intention of returning to Pennsylvania because I absolutely refuse to have either of our parents live in nursing homes. I, I, over COVID, I had friends who, whose parents died and they weren't able to see them because they weren't allowed in because of rules. So their parents died alone. And in pain and not being able to see loved ones. Like I hate that thought. So I agree with you. I, again, I don't think that's the systems. I would push back on that. And I think I would probably even, you brought in a mental, uh, are you, you brought in like an, a mental debate as though someone would bring up to you that, well, you have all these systems around you that are functioning that provide you. That's the reality is a lot of these things that like, if you go to a farmer's market, you're going to these places that are set up, Sure, this could exist in a world hypothetically where there isn't all the other structures, but there are, all these structures are benefiting off of these larger structures in some sections. So the, how closely knit all of our communities are is 
really hard to argue. So you turn into a hypothetical argument to and, and try to extrapolate it out as though it could work. I don't know if we can actually say that definitively. So, and I, but I, I do agree with your basic premise that living more simply, I do believe, actually brings more joy. I believe that living a less cluttered life materially is actually better for you because as the Bible talks about much, you can't take anything with you when you die. The only people that I take with, the only things that go with me are people. So that really does have to be a primary emphasis of mine in this life is my my wife and I, Lord willing, here in the next month and a half, I'll get to hold my firstborn son. And I can't wait to meet Titus and my, my, it's just so exciting to think about having a son and but he's the only investment that I'm going to be making in this life. And any other children I have that I'll actually get to take with me. Nothing else does. And so I do agree. Like we do have a wrong headed emphasis on the materials and the possessions. And I think that once you move away from them and you live without them, you start to see that they were actually an inhibitor to joy an inhibitor to freedom. So all of those things I, I can totally agree with you on. I think that I would say, and I say this kindly, I say this as someone who uh, I consider you a, a friend and things, I don't say this as so belligerently. I do think that you're romanticizing your individual experience onto other cultures because you would like to see it lived out in a big scale. I'm not sure how realistic that actually is in terms of our current culture or how that actually works, or because I would disagree with the, for example, I don't have any qualms about flying or anything like that and, and those kind of impacts so we'd probably differ there but I, I do think i think you can have the systems that epstein talks about and he doesn't see living simply as a threat to existence I, I don't think he would see individual decisions of living on less intentionally as somehow returning to the stone age i think what he's more concerned about is the legislation big picture by corporations and government officials you talked about going around democracy to force us away from those things that would push us back to those uh, former realities we had. That's, I think, his primary concern is not individual decisions as much as top down 1% of people imposing these things on others that would lead us back to degradation uh, in culture. You said a lot, so I can't comment on it at all. Yeah, I don't want to say that I'm, I don't want to imply an over-romanticization that there are, there's another book that I happen to be in the middle of, which is The Dawn of Everything by this guy, David Graeber. And it's really long, it's 700 pages. So I'm like two thirds of the way through. And it talks about lots and lots of different cultures. So I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not an archaeologist. The two, there's a co-author who isn't, he's an anthropologist. The other guy was an archaeologist, if I remember. And they're just going through culture after culture where things didn't fit into the mold of, I don't want to go into the whole thesis, but there were some cultures are, I probably would have wanted to live in, but probably others I would have not wanted to live in remotely. But there were lots of cases of cities that were not hierarchical. And I remember there's one, I think it was the largest city in the Mayan empire around the time of Rome. And I could be way off. And they had like virtually no technology by what we, they might not have had the wheel. I forget exactly. And, but still, it's hundreds of thousands of people, and they could get all the food in, and they could get all the waste out. And this is just, I wouldn't have thought it possible. And yet, it lasted for a long time. And I, I can't make a, a full case here because I don't know the details. 
Yeah, and I think you're catching on something that I get frustrated by. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about a term he calls chronological snobbery. And what he means by that is that we can often look back as though everything before us was just primitive and disgusting and we're better. And I, that's just simply false. So, for example, I got to visit uh, Jerusalem a couple years back for a Bible college academic trip. And we would study like Hezekiah's tunnel, which in the Old Testament, there's a king of Israel's name, Hezekiah. And in those days, a lot of times what uh, opposing armies would do is they would do a siege. They'd surround the city and basically starve you out until you ran out of all your supplies. Then you'd die. It was a horrible way. It was a very effective means of war, but it was horrible. So what Hezekiah did was he built an underground water tunnel system so that his armies could go underground and find water so that they could keep supplying the city in case they were sieged. And what's remarkable is I can't remember how long it was. It could have been anywhere from five to 15 miles. It was a long stretch, but they dug almost, I think it was like 200 feet down through rock, started about 15, 20 miles apart and met in the middle to make this water passage system. And you think that is something that's difficult. That's pretty easy to do if we have like technology we do now to put cameras through and look through. They were doing this with picks and shovels and they followed the mountain ranges. I mean, these people are incredible. And I just say that to say there are a ton of examples. There's also Harridge Rock. It was like some couple hundred ton rock that was 500 feet in the air. They don't know how they got those things up that high. Like what technology were they using? They, They were very brilliant people is what I'm trying to say. And just because they might not have all the advanced, whatever that means, I would be slow to say that just because we have a cell phone that we're advanced. Most of us don't even know how to make them work. If it stops working, we have to run it to a store so an expert can fix it. I don't think that makes us an advanced people. So we just have to be careful, I think, sometimes how we phrase things even. And it's been a while since I read it, but maybe Epstein falls down. Like I said, I don't go with everything he would argue. But simply looking at every culture prior as though it was primitive and foolish and that we've somehow reached the apex of humanity is just absurd. And so I would just push back on because there was brilliant strategies done that met needs so that people could flourish even for hundreds and thousands of years. Yeah. And the, the one of my favorite sites on the Internet is called Low Tech Magazine. And I'm going to tell you one story from it of Fruit Walls, although he did it with tools, he did it with all sorts of things. So Fruit Walls, I never knew about this until I read this. So apparently if you have a tree, trees can grow at certain latitudes. And if it gets too cold, some trees can't grow. So they want fruit trees farther north. They realize that if they put the tree next to a wall, since the wall stops the wind and reflects a bit of warmth, they can get a tree to live a bit more north. Then they realized if they plant like walls on multiple sides, the tree can go even farther north. And then apparently there were, he shows drawings of whole like labyrinths of walls around trees so that trees could grow even farther and farther north. So that they had, they were growing, I think not just trees, but vineyards in England. And when the climate couldn't take it or couldn't support it, but because they had these fruit wall labyrinths set up, they could grow things farther and farther north. And then technology led to where they could make glass big enough. And they found that if you put it like the, so you have a tree and on the north of it, you have a wall and then you have a piece of glass leaning over it. So the tree is not only protected from the wind, it's also getting a bit of a greenhouse effect. And then they realized they could make the whole house, the whole bill. They got rid of the walls, kept the glass. Now that would have the greenhouse effect, the literal greenhouse effect working, not the carbon dioxide greenhouse effect, but the greenhouse. But it didn't actually warm it. So they then would put heaters in the greenhouses and have fossil fuels doing what the walls did before. 
over and over again, he taught, he had this whole thing on hand tools of how they could do these amazing things with hand tools that then eventually they powered the tools and they lost the technique or we lost the technique of what worked before. I had the story about how they put up, uh, look it up to get the details, but they were putting up some, there's an, I think an Egyptian obelisk in the middle of the Vatican. And how did they get it up there? Because it's, it's a really big thing. And apparently it was a year of planning with hundreds of people, all these pulleys and so forth. And it was all the time. It was very tightly coordinated. So there's a huge crowd from all of Rome came to, to watch this one day of erecting it. And the coordination was so tight that they required, there was silence under penalty of death when watching this thing, but they got it up. And the more, so it, the subtitle of that low tech magazine, it's, there's that no tech magazine, which is the same guy or same people doing it, but it says, we love technology. And there's a love of technology that all this power undermines actually the beauty the, and, and a lot of what people were able to do before. And so I love that. I, I think that we, and actually Jared Diamond, I don't know if you read Guns, Germs, and Steel, but one of his starting points was that he said that people in, I think he was speaking about, I think New Guinea at the time, and he was saying, if you give them problems to solve, if you give them like abstract mathematical problems, they don't, it doesn't compute, it doesn't connect. But if it's like, what do you do in a situation like this? They're better than we are. Human type things. And that's a lot of what Graeber was talking about in is the social structures in a lot of places were advanced relative to what we have today. Yep. Yeah. And I think when we think about technology, we have to think more broadly. Most of us immediately think of a screen, but technology doesn't just have to be a screen and doesn't even have to be automated. It can involve a lot of human involvement. And that's why I like to tie this in. So you mentioned Romans, Philippians, maybe we can the last couple of minutes transition to tie some things together with even those books. But one thing that comes to mind when I think about this from a Christian worldview is to think that much of the Bible. So in the new Testament, when the church is developed, the, the word church from the original Greek is ecclesia, which means called out or gathered ones. It's an assembly. And one of the conversations that's come up with, within Christian circles, I'm actually writing on this topic right now for one of my classes is whether or not you can replace a church gathering by going on zoom. So if somebody just watches a service, is that, a replacement? Is it valid? Can you call it church? Can you have a virtual gathering and be at the church? And I argue it, it isn't for various reasons. But one of the things that comes up in that is much of the New Testament has referenced, it talks about the church being the body of Christ. It talks about the church being the temple, which is all locational kind of terms. But it also talks about all the one another's we're to be doing, serving one another, loving one another. And, and one of the things that Jesus tells his disciples in the gospel of John is that the world or other people that are outside the church will know that you are my disciples. In other words, what he's saying is they will know that you follow me. And he says, because of your love for one another. So one of the marks that the church is to be, is to have as a defining characteristic is this other centered love that loves to be with one another and meet one another's needs and be in community with each other. In the book of Acts, when the church first starts, when the right after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first thing that you see is they start meeting each other's needs. They start selling property to meet the needs of other people in the community that are now Christians, making sure they have enough food, all these different things. One of the first controversies that happens in the early church is in Acts 6, and it's because there are Gentile women 
who are being overlooked because only the Jewish women are being given food who are widows in the community, but the Gentile widows were being neglected. So the apostles get together and have a meeting about, and they give, they pick seven guys who then go and take care of these widows who are Gentiles, so they have their needs met. So much of the early church then is seeking to have this one another language that's used a lot in scripture of meeting needs that are physical and in the moment, and they're coming in face-to-face interpersonal contact with each other to do so. So I think I just say that to say that with all our technology discussions, I think one of the things that I can certainly agree with you is we cannot lose the aspect of community. We cannot lose it because that's, I think, part and parcel of being human is our interpersonal relationships with others. And within a Christian perspective, that is supposed to be lived out in the church where our needs are met. And one of the things that's neat is in Acts 2, it says that there was no one who was lacking in the church because anytime needs came up, the church made sure it was taken care of. And I just, I love that picture that we see coming through in in the New Testament. So just wanted to mention that and say, you said you uh, have been listening through Romans and Philippians, and if you had anything you wanted to build off of there, but I think that's an important thing. When we talk about fossil fuels, all these things, those things are important, bigger discussions. But I think one thing we can certainly agree on is the importance of local community influence and Christians, we have a a big category for that, and that's called the church. That's what the the church is. So, yeah, this is why when I, it, it really gets me when someone people keep coming to me and saying, "I got a great guest for your podcast." It's someone who's doing this composting thing, or it's someone who's developing some. They're making jewelry from ocean plastic, or it's some environmental thing. And to me, this is putting the cart before the horse. It's missing the point. And I recognize that when I talk about taking two and a half years to fill up a load of garbage, it sounds like I'm talking about garbage. And I, what I'm talking about is the people on the receiving end of the garbage that I'm respecting. Because I'm teaching this semester at NYU and, and one of my students was saying, and it's a leadership class, so we, environment comes up, but it's not the main point. And she was saying how she is avoiding plastic bottles. And she goes, but the other day I had a headache. I had a headache. So I needed some water. So I bought a bottle of water. I'm thinking top level. She's a student. She's here for leadership. I'm teaching her leadership. I'm not teaching her. Uh, this is a distraction from the main point of, of the class. And so I want to deliver value to her on that. So I'm not going to pick up on this, but a headache. If every time someone has a headache, we're going to have something that lasts for 500 years, not breaking down, releasing things that disrupt our endocrine system. A headache is, I can handle a headache. Maybe it was a migraine, but she didn't say that. And we can go without water for days. And what it was all about herself. I had a headache. I wanted water. Nothing about others. And that's one of the concerns that comes up in these conversations is you have to ask yourself, are your desires for environmentalism so that others think you're a good person? Or are they truly because you want to serve other people? So that's like a prime. We're talking about heart motivations there. And within my perspective, we always want to deal with what's your rationale for this? Just because you might be doing the the right thing externally. Why? What's the what's grounding that? And yeah, if you're if your worldview is, well, I'm going to do things to save the world so other people see me as a good person. But as soon as it costs me a five minute headache or as soon as it costs me any inconvenience, I capitulate my entire worldview. You've just lost any moral authority to speak on such a matter. So, 
yeah, to me, it's when I see plastic, I see someone 500 years from now with it in their world. I see endocrine systems being disrupted and sperm counts going down and birth defects going up. And birth defects is like about, that's really nightmarish to me to do something that could cause it. And we all have these things in our bloodstreams right now so that DuPont could make Teflon. I don't think we need Teflon. And no, and I don't, th- I would agree with you on that one. It also hits me like Gore-Tex is another thing that uses a lot of uh, PFOSs. And so someone a long time ago, I don't know, 50, 70 years ago, Edmund Hillary climbed Mount Everest. Now I'm sure you've seen the pictures of like the lines of people going up Everest. You pay a hundred thousand bucks and everything's taken care of for you. And it's still a, a challenge, but it's not what he did. And if you get enough equipment, it becomes, okay, say you can do a certain level of challenge and that challenge pushes yourself. You learn more about your potential. You learn more about the world. You learn more about the people you do it with. Let's say you reach your potential some way. Okay, now you add some extra equipment and you can do more, but you still have the limit of how much you can challenge yourself, how much you can grow from the experience. So if I can go up Everest with a whole bunch of equipment, but not without it, but I can do, I can challenge myself just as much without it, don't get the equipment and just do the thing that's just as challenging. These days, that's things like getting along with your neighbor. Yeah. And we're or not, not just, that. or not canceling one another. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Yeah. And so, and to kind of work through that, was there anything in particular as you listened through books like Romans and Philippians, did any, any phrases or anything stick out that you were, that you found interesting, challenging or encouraging as you were engaging with that? Oh, the biggest thing was I'm used to reading Genesis and Exodus because uh, I grew up, the, you know, school taught me all that. And this is conversational. It's like a letter from a guy to a bunch of people. And I knew that these were letters, but I hadn't read them or listened to them. And he's talking about his experience. And I'd heard that a lot of church is actually Paul's doing things post-Jesus. And I, I just heard that in principle. So now I'm hearing, and he refers to all these names. And I then looked to a commentary that was like explaining some of the, like in Philippians, he's talking about these two women and we don't know who they are, but they were talking something about them. And there was the guy who came to visit him in the jail cell that came from them. And he was talking about like actual relations between actual people from firsthand, not a long time later writing about it. So the, and this was the, it was a modern language version. So it was significantly more accessible than the very lovely King James stuff that I'm more used to hearing quoted. So that was, that's more meta than the actual details, but that's what hit me most was a different type of document than I expected. Yeah. And you know, what's neat about that is in, in one of the books of the Bible in first John, it's interesting how he starts out by writing. He says that, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So he's talking about Jesus, how they actually, he's saying, we as the apostles, we touched him, we saw him, we heard his words, 
we've seen this person who is himself God is what, is what he's saying. And what's neat is from there, he then immediately talks about how we are to love one another if we love Jesus in a locational kind of way in a church community. And what's interesting then is at one, at the end of one of his letters, then in the next letter in Second John, he says at one point, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. So I just, I, I love that. He's like, you know, I could send this message to you, but I really want to be with you. There's such a, uh, a in-person desire there. And there's something that we can't replace in that, that the Bible is capturing of taking care of each other's physical needs of taking care of those things. That's now, of course, in their culture, they didn't have the technology we have now. So people can debate how much would they have used it if they would, it, would it have changed anything. But even then, the apostles, when they have the opportunity to write, they prefer to be in person and meet those needs and because they love these people. They're committed to this group. And I think that's something we've missed in our day. As we become, I like to use the word techno-gnostic, we devalue the physical and material and become in, enamored with virtual reality. And we act as though it is it can be a replacement. And I, I simply I disagree with that. It's interesting, the word virtual what originally comes from viral or man in person, like it had meant real. And then over time it deconstructs to the point where now it means the opposite of those things. Yeah. So it's just really interesting that words like that are now the antithesis of what they were supposed to be. Yeah. I think part of the reason I focus on values and culture and behavior, personal values and cultural values is that I'm pretty confident that as we adopt value, I'm trying to move toward a movement of more community and connection, I think that our desire for fossil fuels will decrease anyway. And I think that he's very quick to assign Malthus to a lot of things. Jumping back to Epstein. Yeah. There's a lot of effects that are not Malthus and yet problematic. One of the big things that he talked about I'm sorry, is it okay to jump back to Epstein? And, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, yeah, it's totally fine. Yeah. And Julian Simon, I have not read. I've only watched a video of his and read a bunch of reviews of his work. But he's got a book called The Ultimate Resource. Now, there's a blog called The Master Resource or Master Resource Blog. And they talk about oil and fossil fuels being the master resource. It's, as, as you alluded to, it's incredibly portable. You can put some of it, you can put in the back of a truck, some of it you can put in a pipeline. Some of it is gaseous, and, and that has advantages in a lot of different cases. It's incredibly dense. The amount of energy in a pound of it, very high. Nothing else is remotely like that. And there's more to say about how useful fossil fuels are. Yeah, can I add a, like building off of what you're going with? Yeah, I think the idea of oil, when you think about how portable it is in things, I think within my worldview, we talked about this before, just the reality of taking dominion, of using it for human flourishing, of on those things. And I believe I would, and largely, I would say, agree with where everything's going, that those realities are things that we use to preserve and protect life. And I think we should, I hope no one's out there. And I'm sure there's some crackpots that are doing this, but I'm sure, but for the most part, I hope that we're all thinking, okay, this is a resource we can use. Let's try to use it as responsibly as well as possible. And let's always be thinking of ingenuitive ways to improve this if we can, or find better replacements if possible. That's how we got from, I don't think anyone, I don't find many people now who are like, man, we should, why'd we ever go to oil? We should have stuck with just coal, like <laughs> things like that. I don't see people doing that because we, we do want to move and improve on those realities. And I was talking to a friend the other day and he told me, it was interesting. He was connecting back to the civil war and how a lot of times 
we look at whether it's the Confederacy or things like slavery and we go, such an easy decision now. Why would you ever uh, want to not want to fight for the union and see those those systems ever ended, things like that? But what's interesting is to apply that more to something even like right now with oil or things like that and say, what would you do now? Like looking back in a hundred, like if you, you know, zoom out a hundred years from now, are people going to look back on us and go, why they are completely immoral. They use things that were bad for the world. That was terrible. Why would they even think about that? But those of us who live in this time are willing to go. There's a lot of complexity because there's a lot of good uses for it too. I'm not saying the same exact thing about slavery or anything like that in the same ways, but I think it's interesting that when we consider what it's like to live in the moment of something, when those things are being used, there's a lot more complexity in the conversation about how it's to be, how it's to be used. And my concern is that if we're not careful, we are assigning motives to one another. I think that I get the perspective that when I talk to some progressives, they just think that I don't give a rip about the world and I'm fine destroying it. And then I think that for me, it's easy to talk to a progressive and think they're just living in la-la land and they have no substantive desire for actual human good and flourish. And they just want to pontificate about it. But I want to be careful there too, because that would be assigning a motive that I don't think that you or others that I've I've gotten to know necessarily have. So I think it's important to keep that the, the complexity of it in mind and to think responsibly. I, I hope none of us in these conversations don't care about that, about being responsible and good stewards of these things. With regard to the complexity, I, I agree that one of the things, like a common thing I hear for people who want to pollute less is, but my family lives far away. I meet a lot of people, like the big one that, a lot of times people say, look, I'm American. My spouse is French. We want to see each other's families. What are we supposed to do? There's no alternative. And I asked them, imagine you, let's take for granted that the person I'm speaking to believes that fossil fuels pollute and are making the world worse. So others may disagree, but let's say that they do believe that, uh, that lives are at stake, that it's a, it's a life or death issue on, on a big scale. So I say, imagine it's 1800 and you put your life savings into a, a ship that you sail from England down to Africa. You pick up some people there, enslave them, bring them over to the Americas, sell them. And you took out a, a lot of loans. You got to pay back for this boat. You got to provide for your family. And say on the way from England to Africa on one of these trips, somehow you get a 21st century mindset that you believe slavery is wrong. Up until then, you thought it was right for all sorts of reasons that if people look up, there's all, all sorts of reasons people said that slavery was good and just, and we may disagree, but they, in the time, felt it was right. Let's say this person felt that way. And on the way there, they realized, oh my God, this is cruel. This is terrible. This is the most unjust thing I, could, I can imagine. What do you do? So you, you land a boat in Africa. And one thing you could do, if you ever want to see your family again, the easiest thing to do is do what you're intending to do in the first place buy human beings, which is revolting to say, but you buy human beings, bring them over, sell them, half of them die on the way. The ones that don't die are still, we all know the middle passage. What do you do? Do you not do that? Do you go back to England somehow by land, by some other boat going the opposite direction? Do you give up on everything? It's yeah, do, not you, so you easy. Sell them, do you give them back to the people that are trying to sell them so that they're either killed or sold to somebody else? Like the complexity, again, is incredibly daunting to think through. And I think that's the point. Or if they think it's so simple, of course, Thomas Jefferson's statue should be taken down. He owned slaves. I hear a lot of people saying that. All right. If it's so simple, is it not so simple today? Why is it more complex today than then? 
just because you're in it. That doesn't, that mean it might look more complex to you, but that doesn't mean it's more complex. If you think it was simple then, because a lot of people do say it was clear. If you own slaves, you're wrong. Bad. Yeah. And, it's and you should be canceled or even like Christopher Columbus and people like that. And you have to ask the question, what things are we doing in our culture that we should be like, if you, it's easy and it's cheap to look back on past things and to crush them and to throw them out and to act like we've moved on. But that's cheap work. Real work looks like looking at what we're actually doing and thinking through that and, and coming to conclusions like are like, and that's why whether you get into things like whether it be uh, abortion, whether it get into racial reconciliation conversations, whatever hot button topic you want to try to bring in dealing with that right now is that takes putting skin in the game. It's not, hard. yeah. And it's not so tr- uh, pat. I remember what I was going to say before, and now we're leaving open threads all over the place. So Julian Simon wrote a book called The Ultimate Resource. And he actually, my understanding is that there was an ambiguity between what's the ultimate resource between human ingenuity and oil or uh, fossil fuels. And I believe that he was saying that actually human ingenuity is the key, is the ultimate one. And if it's the case that I'll say it too simply because it's the first time I'm really saying this out loud. If it's the case that fossil fuels have more problems than he thought, oh, here's, okay. Between the human, are, are they both necessary? If you had to give up on one, would the other one be good enough? If you believe that we must have fossil fuels, then you don't believe that human, uh, that human ingenuity is so great. I believe that if for some reason humans did not have fossil fuels, the ingenuity, I actually believe in, I agree with him on this. I think human ingenuity is more important than fossil fuels. I would also, he also makes the case that I have to study more to really get that the more fossil fuels we have, the more energy we have, the more energy we'll get. So there's an infinite supply. In, he means something subtly different than just there's an infinite amount of mass inside right. Earth. He's not saying yeah. that's something so simple. Now, I think he's, let's take for granted, I think he's missing some things. There's some things that he hasn't seen that it's worse than he thinks. And it's not just, a, let's just say that's the case. And fossil fuels are a problem. I'm confident that human ingenuity is will will still solve what we need to solve. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've, I've looked at some data and interpreted it in a way that he foresaw, and and I'm missing things. He apparently made that shift himself in his life. But it's also possible if it's the case that the pollution is worse than we thought, or is a greater detriment to human flourishing than we thought. I believe I'm still in his spirit of human. Ingenuity will keep making life better and better. And the fossil fuels are not necessary for that. Yeah, I think we would agree on that because this goes back a couple conversations back. We talked about, you had mentioned the reindeer situation in the one place of how they were so populous and then they ended up just, you know, eating and taking all the resources away from themselves and then dying. And, and as we think about things like overpopulation, climate, fossil fuels, all these different aspects as they come together. I think the distinguishing mark between us and the animal kingdom in that respect is that is our ingenuity because of the image of God in us, because he has created us to take dominion of the world, because he tells us to be fruitful, multiply, and to go about the the, uh, work of human flourishing. So I would start connecting things like that, but I do, I would agree that human ingenuity really is the the thing. And I, I don't hang my hat. I don't think the one thing that we need to be successful is something like fossil fuels, but 
the question then, I think this comes back to where we started and where we'll probably remain as we continually like work through these things, not to be tried just as we work through is one, the morality of it, but then two, is there an actual replacement? Because I don't, the one, I think one of the things that probably would separate us in this conversation is that I see the ability to fly and to travel to other places, like my mother driving out, Lord willing, getting here safely today from Pennsylvania to here, doing a 10-hour drive. I see that as an amazing gift that I'm very grateful for. And I'm thankful for the the fossil fuels <laughs> that, that enable such things and, all, and, and the human ingenuity involved in making things like that possible, such as roadways and all these other amazing constructions, so that somebody who I love, who lives 10 hours from me, can come to me. And we can spend time, as we talked about, face-to-face so that our joy may be complete, right? The reality of that interpersonal connection that we can have. So I see these as advancements in society and as good things. And I think that, so that's where it comes back on. I see that as a triumph of human ingenuity. And I'm happy if there are better replacements that can be found that would not cause all the structures we have to collapse, which would be terrible for society if it happens at once. I'm okay with making decisions that ease things out if there are adequate replacements to keep up the supply and demand that would be had. So, To me, I also hear all these things that you're saying bring her closer led you to live farther apart in the first place. I'm pretty sure, I haven't done this measurement, but I suspect that if we plotted amount of flying versus time with family, I bet that the people who fly most spend the last time, spend least time with family. I'm not sure. Quite, quite and possibly. Weird, and there's a weird yeah. thing that I found that I didn't expect to find. This is a kind of a, an accidental discovery that apparently as cities have grown, distances traveled by people decrease. So before there were cities, people traveled over continents. Apparently there's a lot of moving around. And as cities grew, there's, you could, the distance you traveled grew less, although you might, travel a shorter distance and cross more human cultural changes. Now flying changes all that and automobiles change all that in that we go farther, we go farther miles, but the actual travel experience isn't necessarily like you get into a tube and then you get out of the tube and you've gone 10,000 miles. But if you say it's a journey, not the destination, there's no journey involved with that. You just gotten this thing and got out the other end. And over time, the homogenization that I see is like most tourist areas look pretty similar to each other. There's an Eiffel Tower in one and Machu Picchu in another, but the lines are pretty similar. And the trinkets that they sell are, I remember, oh, when I was at the Vatican, I remember my sister turning me, there's all the stuff being sold outside of it, all the trinkets and things. This is what Jesus said not to have. So this is on the outside of the Vatican in Rome, but. Oh, totally. No, I'm as a Protestant, I grew with that. <laughs> yeah, like it's that's 100% true. And then also, I was just talking to a friend the other day about my most enjoyable road trips are when I remember in my younger years, my family and I, we would get a map out and we would plot a trip. We'd plot our stops and it became a journey, it became like something we looked forward to, we'd planned. Nowadays, how many times do we just grab our GPS, put it in? And it's like, all right, I've driven six hours. I'm tired. I have been, you're not like on a journey. You're not looking at destinations along the way. It's, I go as far as I can. I stop, I sleep, do it again till I get there. So it's point A to point B, as opposed to before, I think it was point A, B, C, D, E. Like you'd have this holistic journey, so to speak, even on like family road trips and things. I think there are aspects that we can lose on it. Again, I don't think that it's necessarily the, the things that are a problem. I do think we should definitely consider how much the things like flights have 
actually affected culture and made it similar. I, there's, I think that'd be a real interesting conversation about whether that's bad or good. Cultures are becoming similar. I don't know. There's a debate that could be had there. But yeah, I see it. I don't think it's the technology that's put me 10 hours though from my mother. That's a good point you make earlier. I see it as the institution that I'm a part of is what brought me here, like the school, the opportunity it was uh, to, I wanted to be on campus with the faculty here because I, I love the teachers. I wanted to be discipled and be in person with them and be trained by them because I've read them from afar and had such respect for them. And I'm thankful for the means that God has provided to be able to be here and, and things like that. So it is tough to be far from family, but I don't think it's the technologist made that distance as much as a commitment to wanting to be trained and prepared for ministry and theology by people I wanted to be in person with to be trained by. So much I want to follow up on. I'm also aware, uh, aware that we're uh, at about an hour. And yeah, it probably is best to, to yeah try to find a yeah to close this up. But I'd love to. I think this is an interesting point, though, to talk about, to maybe plan and think through a little bit for our next conversation would be something along the lines of travel and humans in movement uh, with community and, yeah, how to make sense of that. That'd be an interesting conversation oh, yeah. to build out more. Yeah, travel. I, let's do it. So let's put that on the, on the agenda for next time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for taking the time. I think this is a, yeah, good. There are some open threads, but we can keep talking through some of them. Yeah. (laughs) We're not going to, I don't think you and I are going to close them all. No, that's yeah. Have I talked about the term um, dialogue? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Dialogue. I'm going to say, even if I've said it, most people think it means two as opposed to monologue, but it's dialogue meaning it's a stream of words. So I think we've got a dialogue going. Amen. (laughs) Agreed. All right. Thanks again. Talk to you again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.